0: Will you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter two? As we continue our studies in the book of Colossians, as I said uh, at the, in the announcements, there is a logical break here. I know that's hard for some people because you want to end it when chapter two ends. But remember, the chapter and verses don't come till later. I think there is a uh, conceptual connection between verse 20 of chapter two and chapter three, verse one. So it's a good logical break. Uh, We'll do the beginning of Matthew for our Advent series uh, starting next week. But today, we'll look at verses 16 uh, through 19, shadow and substance. uh, But we'll begin reading at verse 11. In him... You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwritten handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen. Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Amen. Well, let us pray. We're thankful, O God, for the working which you work among your people. And we're thankful, O God, for the freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are in him, that we've been raised with him, that we've been buried with him, and that we have died with him. And so we're thankful, O God, that all our trespasses are nailed to that cross, and we truly bear it no more. And may we cling to Christ and his finished work. May we walk in him uh, uh, in a way that is pleasing unto you. May we walk in him, rooted and established, O God. May we turn away from vain philosophy. May we not be persuaded by words that deceive. Uh, and we pray, O oh God, that you let no one judge us, judge us concerning things indifferent, concerning ways of salvation that are not found in Christ, but are found in one's law-keeping. And so we're thankful, O oh God, for that you are the one who brings all that we need. You give us all that we need in Christ. We need guilt removed. Thank you that you give it in Christ. We need our corruption expunged, and we're thankful, O oh God, that you give it in Christ. And we pray, O oh God, that you would cleanse us day by day in our Christian walk. And we ask, O oh God, that we would not judge others in things indifferent, but that we would certainly see the logs in our own eyes. And if there are specks or other logs in others' others eyes, O oh God, may we rebuke in with gentleness, knowing that we can fall as well. And so we pray, O oh God, that we, uh, you would help us once again by your Spirit. We need your Spirit to understand what is going on in your Word thank you for the promise that your word goes forth may we cling to that thank you for the promise of what you've said concerning what your church must do it must be that pillar and ground of truth and may we be that today O god as your kingdom advances and we know that we need your spirit to work in the hearts and lives of your people to save sinners to give new life but also to strengthen and edify us that we might take every thought captive to the obedience of christ and that we might walk in a way that is pleasing unto you. So help us to cling to the substance and not the shadow now, we pray. And we pray these things by your spirit, in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, when my dear daughter was a little baby, she had this affinity for shadows. She could be screaming, she could be grumpy, but I could take her outside on a nice warm day. And as soon as she saw a shadow, she would... Her whole demeanor would change. She would get excited. She would get happy, especially when it was my shadow. And so you would stand in front of the sun, and her shadow would shine, or my shadow would shine forth down on the ground, and she would get very excited. Now, she has since grown out of this, and as I reflected on it, perhaps it seemed like then she loved the shadow more than me. She loved the shadow more than the substance. I know now that she loves me more than that shadow. Uh, But back then, she loved that shadow. Now, I know that's a very silly illustration, but sometimes the silliest illustrations, they stick with us. And I think that's a good way of illustrating the problem that we see in Colossians here. Why would we love the shadow when the substance is there? Why would we love the Old Covenant ceremonies that had a place, but they were simply but a shadow of the substance to come? And that's exactly what Paul is trying to highlight for the Colossians here, As he writes to them, it's not as though that they were necessarily turning away, but he writes to encourage them in the face of threats, in the face of ones who would say the way of salvation, the way of communion with God is not in Christ or in Christ alone, but it's by ceremonial keeping. It's by not eating certain foods. It's by some sort of uh, mystical experience. And usually what these uh, uh, heretics were doing, and when they did that, was they were taking one's eyes off of Christ. And so we must cling to Christ. We must walk in Christ. We must look to him who is the substance rather than rely upon the shadow. Now in verses 11 through 15, he unpacks the benefits uh, that we have in Christ. We've been raised with him. We've been circumcised in him. We've died with him. We've been buried with him. What we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. All our transgressions are forgiven in him. All our transgressions are nailed to that cross. Why then would we go after vain philosophy? or vain ideas, and so then he turns in verses 16 through 19 to go on the attack in a lot of ways, to deal with those heretics or deal with uh, the problems that come from those heretics. He's attacking the false and vain ideas in verses 16 through 19, and we see the problem in verses 16 and 19 is the problem of being judged and cheated by shadows. The problem of rendering a judgment by the traditions of men in the Jewish understanding of that, but also uh, rendering judgment by vain philosophy, the Greek aspect of perhaps this blending of ideas at Colossae. And what they were saying was the method of salvation is not through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was uh, by way of these laws. And the one, uh, the way in which one had communion with God then was then by keeping these laws, by worshiping angels, by having some sort of mystical experience rather than Christ himself who came down and tabernacled with his people. Now, there certainly is a modern, there's modern aspects or modern uh, ideas that emerge in our time and space that are similar to this. It's the faith plus group. You need Christ you only need Christ that first little bit, but then you need all these other things for salvation it 's in by faith and stay in by works. There certainly are those uh, who are out there. but another problem that we can glean from this text, although it 's not the main context but it comes from other passages, is the problem that sometimes Christians can render by our own preferences. Sometimes we can take our own ideas, we make good goods, bad gods. And uh, sometimes then Christians can take their own ideas, their own preferences, and make it God's law and impose it then on other people. They're not always judging based on God's law, but based on their own preference. That is a problem, although it's not as big of a problem as salvation by works is. But we'll we'll talk about both of them as we go through. But what Paul is doing here in verses 16 through 19 is he's exhorting the Colossians Not to be judged by the shadow when they have the substance, which is Christ. Don't be judged by that shadow when you have Christ who has come, Christ who has died, Christ who has been buried, and Christ who has been raised, and you are in him. Don't follow the old covenant when you are under the new. And so this idea of shadow and substance will be under two headings this morning. It will follow the main exhortations or the main commands in verses 16 and 18. The first point will be let no one judge you, verses sixteen and seventeen. And secondly, let no one cheat you in verses eighteen and nineteen. So let no one judge you, brethren, in verses sixteen and seventeen, and then let no one cheat you in verses eighteen and nineteen. So let's first look at no one, let no one judge you in verses sixteen and seventeen. In verse sixteen, we see the charge proper. Let no one judge you. But notice, so, or therefore, let no one judge you. That goes with what he has already said in the previous verses. Again, your identity in Christ, how you're complete in Christ, how you fulfilled in him, who in him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Christ came down. Sorry, the son came down. That is, he took on human flesh. When I say he came down, doesn't mean God Yeah, he is God, but he takes on human flesh. Doesn't change anything about his divinity, but he takes on human flesh. He is fully God, and he is fully man, like us in every way, yet without sin. And we see that's how God tabernacles among us. The second person becomes God. So the incarnation is vital and important. How does God dwell amongst us? And he dwells amongst us in Christ, and he dwells amongst us now as the body with Christ as his body. Head. And the way in which we have communion with God is through Christ, not through mystical experiences, not through what foods you do or do not eat. You have you are dwell, you have dwelling in the presence of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are then complete in Him. He has taken away your trespasses, he has made a public spectacle of them, he has triumphed over them. So then, but no one judge you. If you are in Christ, And rooted and established, therefore, let no one judge you. And the implication here is that these false teachers were passing judgment. No, you're not going to get to heaven by just relying upon Christ. You're not going to get to heaven by eating steak. You have to not eat steak. You have to not eat these certain things. You have to not drink these certain things. That's how you're going to get to heaven. They were passing judgment based on their own man-made traditions. Now, I should say we're not against the idea of judging. I know in Matthew 7, Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, but the way in which one can judge is not based on man's law, but on God's law. And what I mean by that is sometimes in our modern context, people like to take Matthew 7 or perhaps Colossians 2.16 says, see, it says, don't judge me. And it becomes an excuse for their sins, right? They said, you can't judge me. God says, don't judge. Well, Jesus says, remove the log out of your own eye before you take out the speck. And the image there is that, you know, the specks, they're tiny, minute, little things. And the Pharisees were notorious for looking at tiny, minute, little things without seeing the giant log protruding from their own eyes, And so even, too, in Matthew 18, how does one engage in the process of discipline? By discerning what sin is and passing a judgment in that way. So the idea of do not judge and let no one judge you is not an excuse for sin. But what he's saying here is let no one judge you concerning man's traditions and concerning your standing before God based on those traditions. And this builds on what he has said already in verses four and eight. Let's don't uh, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. And then verse eight, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. And he continues to discuss that in verses 16 through 19. So let no one judge you. And notice the content of that judgment. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths. Now, the emphasis here does seem to be the Mosaic law, although there were certainly sacrificial meals in in, uh, in the Greek world as well. This is certainly in First Corinthians chapter 8. But perhaps the dietary laws are in view here. And certainly there were dietary laws for the Old Covenant people. And when you consider to the temple aspect... Beale has pointed out the temple aspect throughout this book. That's why he talks about how Christ dwells amongst us, how we have dwelling with God. Remember the old covenant, how could they approach unto God? Well, they did have to not eat certain things to approach unto God. The ritual washings, the the ritual uh, ceremonial laws, that was how they approached unto God. They had to be a separate people to approach unto God. Well, what he's saying here is you've already been separated already in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been circumcised in him. You therefore no longer need to worry about whether you have steak or not, or whether you have meat or not, or whether you have certain drink or not. Now, if, some, if someone in their own preference doesn't want to eat something, that's fine, but it's not a way of salvation. But for the old covenant people, even then it wasn't a way of salvation, but it was how they approached unto God. You see this certainly in Leviticus, a lot of Leviticus, but Le- Leviticus 15, 31. I know there he's talking about um laws concerning bodily discharges, but there is a connection with the tabernacle. In verse 31, thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness. When they defile my tabernacle, that is among them. One who is unclean could not approach unto God. And certainly the dietary laws are in Leviticus 11 and Leviticus 20, and certainly in Deuteronomy as well. So there was a place for them. And there certainly was a temple connection. And remember as well, the heretics are saying, I've entered into the temple mystically by my experience and by my so-called law-keeping. Remember what uh, Paul says in Romans 14. We'll come back to Romans 14, but in Romans 14, he says, the kingdom of heaven is not eating or drinking, is it? The kingdom of heaven is not eating or drinking, but what? Righteousness, hope, and peace. I'm sure I'm paraphrasing. It could be other words, but certainly the kingdom of heaven is righteousness, hope, and peace. But this idea of Judaizer type men is not foreign to the Bible. It's not foreign to the New Testament. I mean, in 1 Timothy 4, the heretics that Timothy was dealing with were very similar. They were very similar. And that's why Paul writes and talks about how they have doctrines of demons. They have seared consciences. And He talks about how God has given good things in this world to enjoy. But the way of salvation is not because you don't or do eat certain types of meat. Feast days can be a blessing, but they're not a means of salvation. And so let no one judge you then whether you eat or do not eat in food or in drink, but also let no one judge you concerning the Old Testament calendrical uh, festivals, uh, he says, or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, the annual feasts, the monthly feasts and the weekly feasts as well now the gentiles certainly had their festivals but perhaps places like deuteronomy 16 or leviticus 23 are in view here with the with the old covenant uh uh, festivals that they commemorated good things i mean the you know pentecost passover uh the feast of booth those are all good things to commemorate good things that yahweh did for his people to recall the uh, his kindnesses towards them But even then, even the old covenant, even the keeping of those festivals was never meant to be a means of salvation. That's important, isn't it? These men are taking something that was meant to know it wasn't ever meant to be. The old covenant was all about life in the land. The old covenant was all about external, not internal. And these men are then making it internal. They're taking what was earthly and they're making it heavenly. And what they're doing is uh, uh, attributing something to the old covenant that it was never meant to do. And so they're taking these, uh, these uh, calendars, these, uh, the, cal- the, the, the festivals throughout the calendar, uh, the, throughout the year, and they're using them as a way in which one could have communion with God. So festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. Now, I do need to deal with something here because it comes up a lot. He is not doing away with the fourth commandment here. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There is still a new covenant application of that. Namely, it's the Lord's day Christian Sabbath. Those who don't like to argue that the fourth commandment still applies for God's people come to places like Colossians 2. See, festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. (laughs) Now notice, Sabbaths, plural. Uh, It's referring to the various Sabbaths under the old covenant. Now, the word Sabbath itself just means rest, and we believe in the rest that comes from Jesus Christ. We do believe that. But even the Old Covenant, the rest for the people was meant to be a good thing to recall various blessings God has bestowed upon them. And certainly those festivals, those uh, were also called Sabbaths. I mean, they had the Sabbath year every seven years. They had jubilees. They had uh, monthly, annually every seven years. And so there was a Jewish way of partaking in these Sabbaths. But we do believe the, Jewish, the Jews also celebrate the seventh day as their Sabbath. But that seventh day is still ceremonial. You see, the seventh day is tied to old creation. The first day or the eighth day is tied to new creation. You see, Jesus never does away what the Sabbath does he in Mark chapter 2. He says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. What's interesting there, Jesus could have gone back to Israel and said, see, the Sabbath is only for it. He doesn't do that. He goes back to creation. You see, creation, uh, the Sabbath comes at creation. It's a creation ordinance. And how it then still applies to the new covenant people is in a new creation, new covenant way. And even under the old covenant, it was always meant to be a blessing, How much more into the new covenant is it meant to be a blessing? And a lot of people freak out. Uh, Do I have to do this? Do I have to do? Here's what you get to do. You don't have to think about your job today. And you get to come and worship God. It's a blessed day that is set apart for rest and for worship. And another reason, too, that this is not talking about that is the language of the threefold or the threefold mention of festival, new moon or Sabbaths is found like six times in the Bible together, it's always referring to festivals, not doing away. It's referring to the Jewish uh, uh, festivals, which again, were good, but they're not meant to be a means of or a way of salvation. And if Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath, Mark 2, it is his Lord's day, Revelation 1, the Christians celebrated on the first day of the week, Hebrews 4, 9, there still remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. And there were eighth day Sabbaths in the Old Testament, right? Pentecost is an eighth day Sabbath, and Jubilees is an eighth day Sabbath. And when we say eighth day Sabbath, what we mean is the first day, pointing ahead to Christ and the finished work that he has done. And the beautiful thing about us when we gather, we get, we rest first, then we work. <laughs> the other way it's you work, then rest. Remember, Sunday is the first day of the week we come and rest first as a type of the final rest that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord's day is always meant to be a blessing. We celebrate in a new covenant way. It's always meant to be a boon for God's people rather than a bane. Uh, But this is not a way to argue away from that. So hopefully that is clear. Uh, But uh, so that's that no one judge you in these things, in these above and beyond adiaphora type things. And then the reason why is in verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Again, the old covenant ceremonial laws had a specific function and place in redemptive history. Salvation was not one of them, but they were a type and shadow of something, or better yet, someone who would come. And Paul even highlights, too, that there perhaps still could be a place for them, for the Jews to still enjoy as a Jew, right? Paul still engages, even after he's converted, in certain Jewish-type practices. As he makes his way to Jerusalem before he's arrested, it's probable that he takes the Nazarite vow before he goes in there, perhaps to consider the Jews, to consider who they are, that it might be a platform uh, that he might not give unnecessary offense, so he's not saying do away with it. If one is a Jew, one can still enjoy it, but it is not a means of salvation. The charge is: let no one judge you concerning these things. Let no one judge you in what these, uh, 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 with respect to your standing before God, whether you do or do not keep them. The reason being, they're a shadow; they're just the silhouette. You have that image where it says there, he says, it's the shadow of the things to come, but the substance or the body. When the sun shines on one's body, it creates a silhouette. The shadow and the substance, the shadow points to that substance. And so the old covenant, bulls and goats, the old covenant laws, the old covenant ceremonial laws were pointing to somebody else. I mean, brethren, the answer to the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Sunday school answer applies. What's the Bible about? Or who's the Bible? Jesus Christ. The old covenant. Jesus. Or the, uh, the 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 what are the old or the 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 uh, the types and shadows pointing to? Christ. The old covenant ceremonies pointing to Christ. Figures they point to Christ. Abraham points to Christ. Adam points to Christ. David points to Christ. The Exodus points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the old covenant saints were saved as they looked to Christ to come. Not the bulls and goats. They pointed ahead to Christ to come and they were saved by Christ to come. This is explicit in Hebrews. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10. I'm not going to read all of it, but various places. Hebrews 8, 5. Talking about the difference between the priesthoods, how Christ is better, Christ is heavenly, the old covenants was earthly, verse five, who served the copy, the old covenant priest served the copy and shadow of the heavenly tabernacle, as Moses was divinely instructed, so the earthly was a shadow of the heavenly. We see later on in ten one for the law having a shadow of the good things to come. The shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never, with these same sacrifices offered year by year, uh, make those approach perfect. Bulls and goats could never make somebody perfect. But what those bulls and goats signified is where our perfection and cleansing and washing comes from, namely Christ our Lord. The old covenant saints were not saved, bibles and goats but as they looked to christ to come in hebrews 9 verses 8 and following he says the holy spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing christ has entered into the heavenly tabernacle and brother we too then can enter into the heavenly tabernacle because christ our high priest is at the right hand of god the father It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation, Christ's coming. But then he goes on to talk about the heavenly sanctuary in the Lord Jesus Christ. They point to him. All the ceremonial laws are complete in him. It's all found in him. And Davenant has a good lengthy quote to describe all a lot of what a lot of various Old Testament events and uh, institutions, how they point to Christ. He says, The deliverance from Egypt and the Passover of the Jews shadowed forth our deliverance from the powers of hell and the death of Christ. The feast of Pentecost and that celebration of the giving of the law shadowed forth the descent of the Holy Spirit. And the writing of the law and tables of the heart by the same spirit. The feast of tabernacles delineated pilgrimage of a pious man through the desert of this world to the heavenly country. The Sabbath represented the spiritual gladness and rest imparted to the conscience by Christ, and the feast of the new moon, the enlightening of the church by Christ, the Son of Righteousness, or the sanctification of a new life. What he's saying there is all the Old Testament points to the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him. We tabernacle. We don't need extraordinary religious practices. In Him, we tabernacle with the Most High. And since in Him we tabernacle with the Most High, dear brethren, let no one judge you. I mean, that's the command, isn't it? That's the application. Let no one judge you. But there is also the command judge no one in these things, in man made laws. See, that is a problem. Whether one wishes to celebrate these festivals as a thing indifferent or to be enjoyed, Paul is not against that, is he? That's in Romans 14. Whether one wants to eat or drink, Paul's not against that. When he talks about days in Romans 14, he's not talking about the Sabbath, but talking about feast days. If one wants to celebrate a feast day or not, let them celebrate the feast day. We always have to get in each other's business about certain things. I mean, if someone wants to enjoy Christmas, this is where Christmas applies, by the way. Uh, We have a holy day we celebrate every week, which is the gathering of God's people. We celebrate the incarnation and the resurrection every Lord's Day gathering. I know people come in and they're like, what do you do for Christmas? Oh, we have church on the day before or even during Christmas time. And guess what? Christmas on a Sunday this year. And we'll be here like we are every Sunday. And for all those people that want a Christmas Eve service next year, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday. And what I've said is that if people really want a Christmas Eve service above and beyond the Lord's Day gathering, that the attendance in the evening service must match or oversee the morning service. That is, you must cherish the day God has given to us above the things that are indifferent. Now, I'm not trying to be Scrooge, okay? If you want to enjoy Christmas, that's perfectly fine. If you don't want to enjoy Christmas, that's perfectly fine. I went through a long period where I just didn't like Christmas, and then I had children, and now I like it a little bit more. So, I mean, that's perfectly okay. And we ought to be careful. We don't pass judgment on people for that. We ought to ask God to help us to discern what is a man-made law and what is actually God's law. It's unfortunate, but we all have our preferences that we think everybody should follow. Everybody and their mom needs to do exactly what we want. And we become the arbiter of truth rather than God himself. See the beautiful thing about Liberty brethren is that we're free in Christ Jesus. Are we not? And if God has freed us, and when I talk about freedom, it's not a license for sin, but a freedom to do what God has said, not to have our consciences weighed down by man-made laws. And brethren, we all again have our preferences, but we have to be careful. We do not make our preferences a stumbling block for people. That's the, that's the, the, the principle in Romans 14. He says, let him who does not eat, despise him who, or let him who does eat, let not him who does eat. I'm going to read it. I'm going to get it wrong. Romans 14. 14. 3. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. If someone doesn't like burgers and they're a vegetarian, that's fine. But if someone wants to eat burgers, that's fine too. We ought not to judge one another in these areas. And notice what the rule is. If you're the one who can eat, if you're the one who can enjoy, then not, don't despise the one who doesn't. But also, if you're the one who does not eat, don't judge him who eats. That's the growth and maturity we ought to seek a recognition that it's, that it's a preference and understand that because so many problems arise when we don't do that very thing. So many issues come up and I think Romans 14 is helpful. Yes. If something that is good in and of itself causes you to sin, don't do it. That's, that's fine. You don't have to do that, but there might be people who have self-control and can enjoy certain things that are not sinful in and of themselves. And we ought not to judge them for that very thing. Now, Obviously, the greater problem is when it comes to salvation, when it comes to weighing one down. Hey, here's how you have standing with God. Certainly the papists, Roman Catholics are the are terrible with this. The Colossian heretics, terrible. But we have liberty and freedom in Christ. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty which Christ has set you free, and do not again return to that yoke of bondage. And even in Galatians 5, which is where that comes from, He's not saying you can live any way you sort of want to. That's when he jumps into how God's people ought to live free in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are free because we've died in him. We are free because we're circumcised in him. We're free because we're raised with him. And he is our king. We don't need to be weighed down by the works of the law. So judge no one, but also let no one judge you. We ought not to care (laughs) sometimes, right? We ought to just let it roll off our backs sometimes. The onus is on the church and on us. Don't let these ones judge you. And the reason being is you're complete in Christ. Don't get offended. Don't get upset. No, I'm free in Christ. This is what Christ has said. Let no one judge you. So brethren, let no one judge you, verses 16 and 17. Let's then look secondly at no one cheat you, in verses 18 and 19. The language of cheating here probably uh, is used in the uh, realm of athletics. That is, perhaps there's a judge who wants to fix the game. And as he fixes that game, he wrongly robs someone of their reward. So it's connected with that judgment type aspect. But in this case, it's in the judgment of an athletic uh, event. And rather than being fair, he is the one who judges wrongly, perhaps bribed, uh, perhaps is probably what's in view. And they cheat, let no one cheat you of your reward. Let no one take that from you. And perhaps the shift here is more to the philosophical or Greek side of things. Your reward is in Jesus Christ, not in vain philosophy. And the problem of the vain philosophy was they, it was based on not according to Christ. And he goes on to discuss the manner of cheating in verses 18 and, or mainly verse 18 and 19, four things. First of all, How do they cheat? By taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. So the false humility and worship of angels go hand in hand. Uh, Perhaps the worship of angels was an influence of Plato. And and that's why Paul refers to Christ as the creator over and above the angels. He's the head of the angels. He's the head and disarmor of the principalities and powers. And perhaps it would go something like this. Why humility is involved here. That is, I don't need to approach, oh, we can't approach unto God, so we'll do it through angels. It sounds nice, right? It sounds holy and pious, but it's not. And there's an arrogance that can come with that very thing. It's a false humility. We could, we could never approach unto God, but we'll do it through these angels. And what they're doing is they're, uh, they're engaging in more error with their error and their false humility. And perhaps a modern application is, why pray to saints when we have access to God? I mean, that's the implication throughout all this. Why pray to angels? Why pray to saints when you have access to God through Christ the Lord? Why would you do such a thing when Jesus has come, he's lived, he's died, he rose again, and he's seated at the right hand, and you have God the Father as your audience, That you can call upon him as your father. Why then pray to saints or why then pray to angels? It is a false humility that emerges. And their false humility actually goes against the gospel. And in reality, it is arrogance. It's a false humility. Humility. They sound good, but in reality, they just drive you nuts. And you guys all know one of my favorite things in the world is the person who says they're the most humble person on the planet. I am just so humble. Really? You're the humblest person ever. Why don't you tell everybody about it? Now I do that too. I'm sure there are times where I do that, you know, that that humble brag. You do it, I do it, we all do it, but it drives me nuts. And the reason it drives me nuts is probably because I need to watch over that as well. But this this is on of a different ilk. Just kidding. We all shouldn't be uh, falsely humble. We should recognize that we need Christ. We, we should do that. Humility is a good thing in 312, but here it is not a good thing. And even the scrupler in Romans 14 can be arrogant. Look at that person eating that meat. What a terrible wretch look at me. I'm greater than everybody. Cause they're doing, I mean, all the, I'm not going to go there. I'm just, I, I was going to say, so I'm not going to do it. I'm just not just, you can all wonder what I was going to say, but I'm not going to tell you what it was. Um, but false humility, that's what they do. They take delight in false humility and the worship of angels. So that's the first thing they do. The second thing they do when it comes to cheating, they intrude intrude into those things, which he has not seen. So this is that mystical ascent type aspect. They think they've come to God by way of experience. And perhaps this is where the initiatory rites of the Greeks come into view here. Here's how you come and have communion with God. You have to have this experience. And certainly the Gnostics, that corruption of Christianity that said, body bad, spirit is good. And perhaps they and the way in which you came to knowledge was some sort of secret knowledge only for a special elite people. Well, that's perhaps in view here. They vainly intrude in things they actually have not seen. They have this vision, and they tell this lengthy tale of that vision, which then they think justifies their approach to all things. It's a mystical experience into the unseen realm. And the antidote to that is the incarnation. Jesus has come. Jesus is, uh, uh, has uh, was, has lived. Jesus has died. Jesus wrote, has rose again, and he is seated at the right hand of God. Why then do you need some sort of mystical experience into the temple? So investigating unseen things. That's the second way of cheating. The third way of cheating is being puffed up in mind, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. This obviously goes with the idea of false humility. They have the problem of a haughty mind. Now, if you were to make a list of the most arrogant people in the world, certainly the most humble person would be at the top. But probably next, you'd probably say what? The Pharisees? They'd be probably pretty close to the top, right? And then perhaps tied with them would be philosophers. I <laughs> mean, What do you do for a living? I'm a philosopher. Oh, really? <laughs> That's usually what I think. I shouldn't think that way. But okay, you're, oh, great. I guess you've solved all the mysteries of the world. Typically, when someone says something like that, you there's an air of arrogance that you might assume would be in them. And maybe it comes from them. And so what's interesting is these men are very pharisaical and philosophical. I mean, they have haughty minds, do they not? It's not just your run of the mill Judaizers who, yeah, faith plus works, but no faith plus, you know, keeping the laws. But also you have to have this. I mean, That would puff up anybody's head, right? (laughs) I mean, we all struggle with arrogance and pride, and we let things get to our head when we ought not to. And boy, if I was keeping the law pretty well, and and I had an experience, boy, I would think I was the sharpest, most special person there ever was. I already do think I'm the sharpest and most special person there ever was, but that would really tip me over the edge of feeling the sharpest and most special person there ever was. Vainly. Puffed up by his fleshly minds. What he's saying here is that their experience then trumps truth. than this still happens today, doesn't it? We're not against experience. We're not against, you know, yeah, God stirring our hearts to praise and honor him, but we do so by the truth. The truth ought to stir us to love and good works. But Experience doesn't then go on above and beyond the truth. And that's a problem sometimes. Here's what the Bible says, but this is my experience. I mean, this happens with that do not judge me type crowd, right? They're like the Bible. And usually when they say don't judge me, it's in the realm of like sexual sins, right? I want to live this way. I want to do what I want. I want to live it. Yeah, but the Bible says you can't do that. Oh, but I don't care. It's how I feel. Oh, I don't care how you feel. It's what the Bible says. And so these men are then saying, yes, Christ, okay, but you need to have this experience. And Paul is saying, no, that's a fleshly mind view. That's a fleshly, that is fleshly thinking. And it puffs one up. I love what Davenant says. He says, to love, this is going to hurt some of our delicate minds, but that's okay. To love these inventions of their own brain with a certain foolish self-complacency and to exhibit like apes this most deformed offspring of their own conceit for the highest and fairest of wisdom i know again we don't like how he called people apes there but perhaps it's uh, when we consider you know how we speak to certain people if i'm speaking to a heretic i'm going to be a little bit more maybe more not mean but a little more a little more firm i think but perhaps if it's someone who's just learning, I'm going to be more patient with them, right? I mean, if someone's meant to be a t- is trying to be a teacher, he can probably you know swing a little bit more. Paul calls the circumcision the mutilation in Philippians chapter three. People don't like that either. I mean, he's throwing digs at them there, and so these men here are vainly puffed up in their fleshly minds. That's how they cheat, false humility intruding into things they haven't seen and vainly puffed up. And then notice in verse 19. In verse 19 is still how they cheat, but it's also an implication for us, how we grow. And not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from Christ. Christ is the head of the church verse 18 and 24 christ is the head of all principality and power how then do we grow in him if we are the body we grow in him based upon that vital union that we have with the one who is lord of new creation and the implication or not just the implication but clearly what has already been said in the book is the body is the church that is when we walk in this world we ought not to walk alone if we walk in christ we walk in truth but we walk with the body of christ do we not and the antidote to vain philosophy and legalism is a church that holds the pillar and ground in truth you see the problem of the heresy is the benefit of the church the problem of the heresy is they're not in christ and the benefit of the church is that we are in christ and the benefit of the church is that he is our head and we are the body And we as the body grow in him. And if we're away from that body, it's going to be hard to grow. Now, certainly Christ is very patient with people. He very much is more patient than we ever are. But notice we are united. We are nourished in him, whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. The image of a body that works together. Certainly, there's the universal church. There's the local churches. That's why it's good to join a local church, to be part of that body, to grow together, to have accountability that way, to grow together. I know there's going to be times where the ligaments sometimes hurt a little bit, and that's okay. That's why Paul says you need to forgive and for forbear with one another later on in Colossians 3 and Ephesians chapter 4. What's interesting though, in Ephesians chapter four, he uses similar language. God has, Christ has given gifts to his church men for the building up of the church or for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the church that the body might be joined together, growing as joints and ligaments. But how do we grow? In him as the pillar, who is the pillar and ground or what is the pillar and ground of truth? The church that grows in its vital union with the head and if we are not using the means that he has given that is on us and not holding fast to the head who is christ whom all the body grows with the increase that is from god it's increase that comes from god and he's already talked about how they have grown in one six and how he prays for them to grow in 110 how then do we grow in the body And with the church and with the saints, church and the ministry, the place where Christ should be preached and the place where God's people should grow as they hear him proclaimed. When there are threats like heretics out there, when there's battles and struggles with sin, is there any better place to be than with the people of God? You know, it's harder for our modern times because we have Bibles at our fingertips. Remember, there was a time where most Christians did not have a Bible because it wasn't easily available and they had the only place they got church and the only place they only place they got the bible was at church they had to be in church they had to gather they had to hear it read because otherwise they would go through the week without unless they memorized it and that's why a lot of them did memorize that very thing i'm not saying you shouldn't read your bible i'm not saying you shouldn't pray what i'm saying is come and gather with the saints Grow together, grow as joints and ligaments, grow together, nourished and strengthened by Christ. Him we proclaim, and it's in him that we grow. It's where we're reminded what he did, what we are in him, and what he continues to do in us now by the Spirit. And so, brethren, let no one take Christ from you. That's why the hypostatic union is so vital. That's why Paul has spent so much time unpacking that for us. The image of the invisible God, but the one who is the the firstborn over all creation, but also the firstborn from the dead, the one fully God and fully man. It's not some abstract doctrine, how there's one person and two natures, but it is crucial for our salvation and for our communion with God, Edie, the old boys highlighted this. The new boys, not so much. The new boys are all about exegesis, which is good, like unpacking Greek words. That's all fine. But the old boys brought in theology, which was excellent. Edie says, the church can enjoy neither life nor growth if misunderstanding Christ's person or undervaluing his work, it have no vital union with him. We need him to be fully God and we need him to be fully man. That the one who is God, who is perfect in every way, dwells with us in the incarnation, and that we who are man might dwell with him in and because of the work of the God man. Davenant says if they acknowledge him to be God, they would seek from him alone grace and salvation. And if to be man, they would not solicit angels or other men to intercede for them, since they have Christ, our elder brother. Sitting continually at the right hand of God, He is the blessed mediator between God and man that we need the man, Lord Jesus, the God man, fully God and fully man. Brother, let no one take Him from you. What He has done for you, what you are in Him, claim to Christ always. And if you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are many. Vain philosophies, many traditions of men, but they will cheat you of everlasting life. They all say you must do something, all of them. But only in Christ there is mercy and forgiveness through faith in the one who did the work for us. If you believe on him, all your trespasses will be forgiven because there is forgiveness in him. And so brethren, hold fast to Christ who is the substance. Do not hold fast to the shadow. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, we are thankful for your mercy and for your grace toward wretched sinners like us. Thank you, O oh God, that you teach us the truth, but also teach us the problems with other vain ideas out there. Please forgive us, O oh God, for the times where we become um, ones who weigh down others uh, un- right, unjustly, Please forgive us, O God, for making our preferences your law, but we're thankful, O God, even in this, there is forgiveness and mercy. And we pray, O God, that we would always cling to Christ who is the head, cling to Christ who is our Savior, always look to him day by day. And thank you, O God, for the church, which is the body of Christ. And may we grow as your people. May we grow in our lives. May we grow in love and care for one another. May we grow in our understanding of who you are and what you've done. Thank you, O God, that you do raise up men that you do plant churches, that Christ is the one who is proclaimed. And may we continually proclaim him each and every week. And may we love the gatherings. May we love to come and hear about who Christ is and what he has done. Be with those who couldn't be with us, uh, who are providentially hindered. Please help them to return to us very safe uh, soon. Uh, We pray for those who perhaps wayward in this. Please prick their hearts and please work in them by your word. And please bring them back to us as well. And we pray, oh God, if there are any here today who do not know you, please save their souls. Please give them new life. Please uh, teach them that the law only weighs down, but there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ by faith. Thank you that you work. Thank you that you change. Thank you that you are the one who saves and you are the one who brings growth. So bring growth amongst us now, we pray, and may you be glorified in all things. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.